0: Tell your story, build your brand, ArtMediaNorthwest.com, A-R-T-M-E-D-I-A-N-W.com. Now, enjoy this conversation with Brandon Cook. All right, we're here with Brandon Cook today.
1: Hey, how you doing, Danny?
0: Great. How are you, Brandon?
1: I'm doing awesome.
0: Awesome. Guitarist extraordinaire. Um, So, Brandon, can you tell us about your childhood, kind of growing up, and how you got into music?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um when I was well, I grew up in Boyd's Maryland. That's where I was I was born in Washington D.C. and uh lived there until I was about 11 and the way I got into music my my cousins and and my aunt and uncle were in a band and they just I was always totally inspired by music and so running around singing songs, making up little ditties and stuff like that then one day, my parents noticed me worshiping my cousin, Kurt, and uh, they were just like, wow, we need to get him doing that. Yeah. And so we we took a couple bass lessons from him, and it was a really big deal in my life, you know, just like, wow, I'm playing music like my cousin is, you know? Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, pa- parents broke up and things kind of put on hold a little bit for music, but... Um, as soon as i moved to california and we got established there my parents just they couldn't they saw me just going crazy for music wow. and you know 80s rock scene was super huge like yeah you know i was i mean of course i was into like poison and ozzy and you know megadeth and stuff like that but once megadeth really hit it was like this is what i have to do with the rest of my life but i didn't know that's what i was thinking mm-hmm. it was just like I need to play music and my parents picked up on it really fast yeah and so they got me guitar lessons in um, the end of the summer when I turned 13 that was my birthday present for being 13 guitar lessons yep that's
0: awesome that was a good fit for you I think
1: yeah I've literally been playing 30 years wow (laughs) it's crazy (laughs) I can't believe it so you know I did um you know I have I have three brothers and I was really the only one with musical um,
0: aspirations. Yeah,
1: or... musical aspirations, initiative. I I immediately started trying to find people to play with, and you know, it was a little harder to find people who were really driven like I was. And even at that time, I was just like really into it,
0: really focused. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah.
1: And when if some when somebody wasn't given enough, I could I could really just I'd be like something's not right here, you know, and each time I'd find somebody who was better and better and better and when somebody wasn't giving their all the way I was because I was I was also into sports so like my coaches used to push me really hard
0: yeah so you saw how to like really excel
1: yeah yeah soccer baseball basketball I played football you know my dad used to be a race car driver and like
0: my dad was a race car driver too oh really that's amazing
1: (laughs) (laughs) So I just always had this, it's in you know, this sense of like what excellence means, you know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I've been just kind of trying to find that ever since. So having fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely. A lot of fun and a lot of bands. Can you tell us about some of the bands that you work with?
1: Yeah, um, currently I'm like the main priority bands are, um, you know, like Black and Blue and Appetite for Deception and the loyal order that's my main original project right now okay but um appetites a guns and roses tribute band and i've worked with them for 14 years and the um black and blue i've been with they're i just got back from playing a huge festival in, in maryland called m3 and the largest audience i've ever played to wow so i like, think it was like eight or Eight or nine thousand people—I can't remember the exact count. Somebody call in and correct me. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, the the newest pro- the newest project I'm working on putting out is uh, the Loyal Order, and we have a single out, self self-produced, and we're doing um, promotions with um, Ellison Music Productions, uh, which is EMP Music Group, and it's a like a partnership that we're doing with them, and it's been. It's been really cool. We have 120, like 120, I think 125,000 views on Facebook and on our new song called "Ready for Dead." Wow! And it's it's been getting a lot of like good attention from people. So we have a pipeline of tunes that we're getting ready to release. Okay. You know, we try to do it in like a singles fashion. You know, because you know the record companies, record releasing is is not. You know, people aren't buying albums. Right. So we're trying to find like the method of releasing things that really gets people attention. Like we have super high quality videos and, you know, spend a lot of time making sure the songs are right. We have a really great producer named Rob Dacre. And, and his
0: name's coming up a lot on this. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: Dacres. He's a real professional, man. He's, he's like the highest, the highest grade producer we have in Portland. You know, he really understands how to get great sounds and not only like the great sounds, but like, Additional things that you do to make a record sound like international level, right? And you know, I think that's probably the biggest thing that that I've always been aiming at—just how to make rock and roll sound like international level. At where I'm at, instead, so, right. you know, you can go get a record deal and try to do that, and you know lose your butt on millions and millions of dollars or whatever, but, totally. or you can like find people you trust, like my, my songwriting partner and, you know, musical partner, Jeff Buner. you know, he's utmost ethics and just amazing person and great songwriter, great lyricist, you know, and working together with him has just been a dream for me. I love working with that guy.
0: So awesome. So as a kid, what did you see yourself doing for a living?
1: Mm, definitely this. Yeah. I mean, I, I I can't really remember when it changed you know my parents saw me having really high high potential in school you know I had um, just really good grades and you know not only that athletic and you know I wouldn't say charming because I was a pretty shy kid but like just I had ability to like you know garner friends and stuff like that so I was very social but like all those things didn't equal being a doctor or lawyer to me you know right like whatever those aspirations were for them it just never clicked that way and then it was time to go to college I was just like I want to go to music school you know I want to go find people I want to go find people that play music the way I want to play music yeah and you know take it as far as it'll go and you know that wasn't that wasn't very well accepted, you know, (laughs) who wants to see their child throw, you know, thousands and thousands down the the music chute? (laughs) Yeah, it's a, it's a void, isn't it, that that you
0: throw that money into? It goes somewhere, but not to the musicians, I don't
1: think. Right, exactly. You know, so doing it for a living, I kind of made a, a more practical choice in, you know, teaching and, you know, going to music school and trying to figure out how to make, like, I don't know, sort of like an industrial thing for myself, like, how do I make, you know, uh, an income stream come out of doing music? And teaching was the very first thing. Yes. So, you know, I just learned thousands of songs, teaching lessons to kids and, you know, teaching like, literally thousands of kids. I've taught, you know, kids of all ages, as they say <laughs> exactly. at Disney, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I love teaching and I love being interactive with people that I work with. And, you know, like, so if you to answer the question, I, as soon as I was really playing, I had a guitar teacher named Matthew Grasso and being able to keep up with what he was doing and what he was showing me. I was like, okay, I'm not just some kid playing guitar. I'm like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. I have to do this. And if I stop, I think it would be just wrong for me. Mm -hmm. I've, I've even had like several side jobs that were not music and I did some work selling, uh, I'll just say selling last year and, uh, that I did okay, but it wasn't me. Right. It wasn't, you know, I, I, I was excelling at the job just like I would at like in, in school, you know, it's like, oh yeah, I excel in education and I know how to connect with people. And, but like, when it comes to like me being excellent at something, music is, is the, the pinnacle of what I can do, you know?
0: Well, so. I think uh, from back in our days at Portland State, uh, at the time, I think you were studying with Brian Johansson yeah. f- briefly. Mm-hmm. And then they got a jazz thing happening. Jerry Hahn came aboard. That's right. And you jumped over to jazz. And I was like, oh, I should have done that. Oh, yeah. I thought <laughs> I was going to study jazz. I, I uh, The community college I went to, we had one year of classical Mm-hmm. The next year, everybody came back with their classical guitars, and the guy said, uh, "Bring your electrics tomorrow. This is now a jazz course." And Where was so that? Was, at? That was Niagara County Community College in oh, Sa- really? Sanborn, New York, yeah, near Niagara Falls. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Then you came out here yep. after that. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. So PSU was my second year here because I lived here for a year, so I could be in state, you know, mm-hmm. the whole time. But right. Yeah, so, anyways, but I remember you played, a, like, a, an electric guitar suite by Brian Johansson or something like that. It, it, it was some, maybe yeah. a prelude or something like that.
1: I did two things. That uh, cla- was, like, a classical for electric. Like okay. Brian Johansson wrote these. He wrote etudes, this five etudes for this guitar student of his. I think he commissioned him. Okay. And then that same guy commissioned a duet with bass from Tomas Svoboda. Yes, oh, <laughs> yeah, Svoboda. Yeah. yeah, and I played both of those. You know, oh, wow. I, I played. I only played one movement of the Brian Johansson piece, and that went really, really well. Yeah. You know, I, I was. I remember watching the video, going, "Jeez, I played that. <laughs> <laughs> cool." And you know, at at the time, I mean, I remember Charlie Gray telling me, like, he's like, he was like, Charlie Gray was the the music um, head of the jazz department there, and he was like, he's like, "Wow, that was one of the best performances we've had here." You know, I've been around a long time, and you did one of the best performances I've seen. And I'm like, ah, you're just saying that. Come on, you know. And but Charlie, no, I've known Charlie. I know Charlie, and he doesn't talk.
0: He doesn't BS people.
1: Yeah, no BSing, and it really felt good to to see that I could. And not only that, like I had a lot of people there. Yeah. And I really tried to. I really pimped it hard. yeah, Yeah. (laughs) I just, I don't know. That's one of the things I've. I've just done some personal study about like my personality and mm-hmm. the the they I get called the campaigner.
0: Okay. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that music school experience of playing jazz and doing that was was really exciting for me and scary too because I wasn't nearly the best student in the school. You know, like there was there was so many great guitarists and sax players and drummers and everything that just pushed me. You know, yeah. Being trying to get into groups with those guys that were like the best and just try to try to figure out how to hang with them you know whatever whatever method i had to do to hang with those guys i had to do it yeah so when that was 10 to 12 hours of practice a day including all my guitar students i was teaching (laughs) so it's it's a lot of time yeah a lot of time exactly
0: so you're with you play with a bunch of other bands too right Mm-hmm. More, more casually. Do you want to mention? Because you mentioned kind of the main three, right? Oh
1: yeah. Um, the the I wouldn't say they're casual. Just like they're just <laughs> sorry. They were just like lower priority. You know lower, what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I I had to I had to sort of like figure out which ones were my highest priority that projects. That makes sense. Yeah. And like the probably the next one in line is is this band called Metal Morphosis that you know we're we're working we're shopping the project to to get um to get uh, some sort of like licensing deal for it because. We, uh, what we did was we took jazz songs, and we made metal, epic, sagas out of them. Wow! <laughs> like like we did uh, "Strangers of the Night" by Frank Sinatra. Uh-huh. I don't think he wrote that, but it's he. It was one That's of his famous popular, songs. That's the popular, yeah. We have a video for "Night and Day," and you know what happened? My my friend Andy saw me and my friend Larry Smith playing at this thing called Monsters of Rock, PDX, and we were doing like we did all these uh, Richie Blackmore songs. So it was like Burn by Deep Purple and Man on the Silver Mountain you know, by Rainbow. And I think we did another Deep Purple song, uh, Perfect Strangers. You know oh, that one? I don't know. Yeah, it's a really great song. But yeah. like, he, heard, he, he didn't get into the thing because it was sold out when he arrived. But he was standing outside listening to me and Larry perform. And he was just like, oh, my God, I have to do a project with these guys. So he called me the next day and he was like, uh, he was like, "Okay, so here's my idea. I have, the, I want to take jazz songs and make them into metal epic sagas." And I'm just <laughs> like, "Uh, really? <laughs> <laughs> do you do like
0: the two five one chord changes and all that stuff, no. or is it, it simplified chord? We uh, told like, some power- of them.
1: We did like, okay. like I, I just I would do like the most metal version of." the sure. chord progressions that I could think of. That
0: makes sense. And
1: sometimes it just required me to completely rewrite it.
0: Okay. You know, sometimes
1: sometimes it was in, a sa- in the same key, but like okay. uh, the, the key's not really, you know, as big a deal because we needed to make sure it worked for the singer. Sure. And the singer, you know, we found the right keys for him, but like we, we, in night and day, it's in drop C because it was heavy. And I, you know, just created this, this guitar platform for everything to work on and, we even rewrote the melodies for the tunes. Oh, wow. Uh, so it's a complete restructuring except for the lyrics. Cool. You know, we did use, like, I think on Food, Glorious Food, we used uh, some of the melody. But, like, even that, we turned into this giant, you know, musical theater number that was, like, totally, you know, TSO meets, you know, Tommy, like the Who. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> and, That's wild. Yeah. So we just, uh, like, we have, a, we did uh, a Nat King Cole song called. I know who did good morning heartache. I can't remember. Good morning heartache was like, so we turned it into a black Sabbath song. You know, like, like that we were kind of trying to go for like a, a licensing kind of sound. And we just, we were like, okay, let's make this thing dark, you know, like black Sabbath, number one, black Sabbath. (laughs) And it turned out, I mean, it's my riffs, but we really like created this big giant. It was probably like three or four minutes long. and, and, it's Like, wow, man, this is really cool. So, <laughs>
0: it sounds cool. We
1: used Sammy Hagar's uh, um, engineer, his name is Jamie Durr, and he's been doing a really good job getting you know the mixing results. And Andy Korn is the producer and, and main engineer, like that. We do he does the drumming, uh, and he co writes the the arrangements with me, and we all put the melody, like the melodies and everything together with Larry Smith, who's also in the local. Um, Scorpions tribute band, uh, cool. Lo- Love Drive, and he also has uh, a Led Zeppelin tribute band too.
2: Wow! <laughs> so
1: it's all sort of intermingled. Sure. But that that's my probably next in line project. Um, I'm in a uh, a Foreigner tribute band called Jukebox Heroes. Um, I have an acoustic trio uh, that is sort of a comedy thing. Like we change the lyrics on each other and like insult each other on stage. That's <laughs> fun. That's called Bam Acoustic Trio. Um, and I do. Uh, I have my own original project called The State of Balance, so that's not necessarily low on the priority list. It's just, you know, solo project is harder to finance and get done than you know when other other people are helping out. So sure, or doing all the finance. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Uh, that's it's it's not necessarily low priority, but it's like it's just it's kind of backburned right now while I work on the projects that are really picking up steam.
0: Yeah. And is that somewhat seasonal or just right now it's just morphing into whatever it's going to be? What's uh, that? Like as far as your bands go, like uh with the tribute bands do you play more shows in the summer or is it uh,
1: Yeah, I think most bands that I work with play more in the summer just yeah. because there's you know more people out and stuff. Uh we I do play a good bit with The Appetite for Deception during the during the fall and winter. Yeah. But spring and summer is definitely like the time and you know it's it's important to me to stay busy in the off season. So I do a lot of writing and, and studio work and stuff like that during that time. So I'm always trying to like hustle and, you know, keep jobs moving forward. And, um, there's this other project I've been working on lately called invasive species. That's like, it's a prog rock thing. That's like, it's like, I guess it's kind of like pink Floyd from the seventies, but a little bit more, Mahavishnu, <laughs> okay. You know, because we have some really great instrumentalists that we played with on it, and my my producer Paul Lamb, and also a very dear friend of mine, um, he did he did he he did a very cool experiment. He invited me and um, a couple of drummers to come play with him. So he paid us and you know flew us in or whatever. Like I I came down from Portland to San Francisco and we did we got into the studio and. Completely jammed for like two days. Wow! (laughs) And just it just jammed. Like, did there was a couple of riffs that he had us he wanted us to play on to kind of get grooves, Mm -hmm. and we would jam on those riffs and grooves, and I would solo over top of them. And there's a couple of solos that he kept note for note from the original recordings and like built structures. Like, it was like you. Some people would call it a Pro Tools chop job, but it's it's really not. It's like. Create it's composing mm-hmm. after the fact,
0: yeah, sure.
1: And it's just a really interesting process the way he goes through it. And he has got some some really sarcastic, tongue in cheek, socially you know poignant lyrics that are like just I don't know. It's, you know, to me, it doesn't really like pick on any one particular side of the political spectrum. It sort of like puts the mirror up to all of it. Mm. You know, it's like. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's there's a lot of show to this politics thing, isn't there? You right. know. It's very uh tongue in cheek and I sang some I sang some of the most uh sharp lyrics I've ever had to sing in my life. And I sing on the project too. Okay. Sing lead on I think six songs now. And there's this one song that uh, that we do about uh emotional relationships and the one of them is just like, it's about being in therapy with two people that refuse to get along. And, you know, it's a dynamic and it's just, it's really like, if you've ever been in an abusive relationship, it just cuts to the core, you know, of like, it, like I say, I feel this way. And instead of hearing what someone says to you, they go, I hear you say you don't love me or something like that. You know, it's like, Wow. Well that's not what I said at all. Right. You know, and then you go, Well, I can't ever understand you. Like it gets to that point where it's just yeah. immediately <laughs> becoming like this toxic thing. And the the songs all sort of have that deeper level thing. It's not surface it, that that's one of the things that I like about the lyrics. It's like they're not surface level. Right. So when I when I sing a song like that, it just really pushes me as an artist to like interpret that emotionally with my voice. And
0: to get vulnerable with it in a way, or or yeah, or, yeah whatever the adjective yeah. is.
1: The so it says um, the last the last line of this song goes. It says, "So I'll play the system because it's easier on me, but please excuse me, dear." And all the uh, all things have their breaking point, and I hear purgatory is lovely this time of year, <laughs> you know. And yeah. it's just like being in a being in a relationship like that is is hell. And yeah. if you can have a loving relationship with someone and, you know, get through having, uh, difficulties and stuff like that, that's hard enough. Sure. Yeah. But if once, when, when you have someone who's a very toxic partner that won't listen to you and you know, they, they keep saying they will, but they don't. And it just gets down to the, to the wire, the nitty gritty Yeah. real fast. So, um, uh, I also have a, that's that's a lot of information. It's a lot
0: of bands and a lot of information. Yeah. That's all right. It's yeah. so
1: good. Uh, it keeps me fresh, man. It keeps the writing like just like flowing out of me. Yeah, um, I, I'm. We, I did a, a a recording a couple of years ago with my very dear friend Sarah Moon. She's just one of my favorite people in the world, and and we wrote we wrote a song together, and she asked me to play on her record, and we had a really great band um, that that did the album together, and. Man, it just came out so great. It was really raw, you know, sort of Americana-type record. And she came to me a couple months ago and said she wanted to write a rock record. And I was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so we're we're working on songs now. I think we have two two frameworks with lyrics and more to come.
0: That's so, awesome.
1: Yeah. We've only had two writing sessions, and they've been pretty fruitful. So
0: Very cool. How many instruments have you played over the years?
1: Um... Let's see. Um how how many instruments have I played well? <laughs> <laughs> so that's a different question. Though. Um I've played uh I I had guitar, that's my primary instrument. Sure, um, uh vocal is my second instrument. Uh I I started writing lyrics very young. Um my very first attempts at lyrics were like 14 and I've been writing songs. I mean, just writing little creative ideas that I had in my head Mm -hmm. since I was like five I mean like little, little musical ideas that just kept I skipped down the road singing little ditties that I made up and the I mean it wasn't often at that time but like once I got a guitar it was all the time I was constantly making up stuff finding little things on my guitar to like oh I wrote this you know this is cool I dig that you know and I got into my first band when I was 14, so I was writing ever since then. Wow. And so guitar and voice, voice became sort of like a necessity because I uh, I could sing and play at the same time. Yeah. And I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be able to do that. You, know? <laughs> you <laughs> didn't
0: know those were two different skills. You just thought it went all all went together, right?
1: Yeah, I saw James Hetfield and Dave Mustaine doing it, and so right? they were my heroes, so I was like, I could do that. And actually, I didn't even think that I was just like I must do that. Right. It's like I have to sing and play at the same time. So I tried to start figuring that out really, really young. Yeah. And you know, Max Cavalera from 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 uh, Sepultura was like a really huge influence on me with that too. I remember reading an interview with him that said (laughs) he couldn't. He was. It was so ingrained in him to play and sing at the same time that he couldn't do it on his first session without doing that.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. Cause you record the guitars and vocals separately.
1: Yeah. And they were like, they were like, dude, you have to do it without the guitar. And he's, <laughs> cause it gets in the microphone. He's like, oh, I can't do it. You know, <laughs> this is how I know the songs. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's and amazing. So I, that, that was like, yeah, that's me. You know, yeah. and so for a long time, I, I had my own band and, and wrote lyrics, sang and played guitar. And when I got to Oregon, that kind of music was sort of like, going out of phase, so I had to learn how to play differently, and they wanted to have a singer that was more, you know, like a singer, mm-hmm. and I was more of a barker at the time, Okay, even though I could sing harmony, I didn't realize I could do it I didn't, like again, like I said, I didn't know I wasn't supposed to be able to do that without lessons but I could sing harmony as long as I can remember, so um, I, yeah, like just being, someone sings something and I go, you yeah, know, like this you know, and they're like, what are you doing? And I'm like I don't know, you know, and then one day somebody told me I was doing harmonies, and I'm <laughs> like Oh, that's what that is, you know. So I don't necessarily think I was good at it, but that's what I was just doing. You could hear it though. Yeah. Where, yeah. That's cool. I, I was probably terrible at it, but uh-huh. <laughs> I just remember doing it. So and then I could hear when someone was doing it wrong. Yeah. I was like, that's not how it goes. It goes like this, you know. So I mean I didn't try to be a jerk about it, but <laughs> I was fourteen or, or when I was sixteen when I was figuring out how that this thing was happening sure. for me. So but so Guitar voice, and then I started out on bass when I was eight, okay, so that that's that I play bass on I played bass on three folding records now, so okay, uh, I've gotten to be pretty good at bass. I love playing bass, and it's a I'm surrounded by really good bass players, so it like if I suck, it's gonna be like dude, that bass playing's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you sound like you play, like, you sound like you play, like, a guitar. Yeah, know, that, that's that's the common oh, one. Oh, yeah, yeah. You need to stop playing bass like a guitar player. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> so, and then also, you know, I studied piano in school because that's what you had to do. Right. <laughs> so, I don't consider myself a piano player at all. But I do have fun with it.
0: Yeah. I like writing on piano, too. Yeah. Um, how would you describe yourself?
1: Hmm. Well, um... I am, uh, I would say, empathic. Um, I think I I feel the emotions of others, and um, I definitely, like, try to feel um, I'm a father. You know, that's one of the things that I'm best at in this planet. You know, like, as much time as I've spent studying music, I spent uh, equally or maybe more time actually studying being a dad. You know, playing music, you you do your studies and then you play. You know, you have to study and be a dad at the same time the whole time, I think, you know, okay. if you're going to be really good at that. So, like, um, I'm intellectual and want to understand, you know, what it is that I'm going around. So, like, the intellectual empath, you know, feeling thing definitely conflicts. So, <laughs> <laughs> it's like sometimes you understand something intellectually and you have to figure out how to connect that emotionally. Yeah and that can cause great anxiety sometimes sure so um, like wow you know I think observer is, is something I am you know I really observe things very powerfully you know and if I don't understand it I look deeper you know if I have if I have a challenge before me I always dig you know as far as I can into it to really really understand it there are certain things I get you know lazy about but with music it just music and fatherhood and you know relationships and stuff like that. I, I never give myself a, um, a pass. There's no excuses, you know? So if I, it's like, if I can understand this intellectually, I can emotionally understand this too. So, um, I I guess there's sort of like a scientist side of myself as well. And, uh, want to, want to understand things beyond my current understanding. So, um, yeah, I uh, do you have any questions about that? I'm not gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk myself into a corner. I'd no, just, no. If I describe myself, you know, like I'm really like, sur- always surging for information and surging for like new feelings and experiences and understanding like the things that are before me. Mm-hmm. And if I if I can't understand it, that's really hard on me. But like at the same time I have learned to let things go, you know, when they don't when they don't work. It's like, okay, this is something I don't understand and I'm asking for help on this and no one's helping me. So that's okay. I can make this not my responsibility. So whew, <laughs> you know. You
0: can let go yeah. sometimes, yeah.
1: Yeah, it didn't it didn't used to be that way. It's
0: but, yeah, it's a tough one to figure out, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I agreed.
1: And, you know, I I I want it, I want it to be, I'm always just trying to like learn new things. I can't, I can't even like so many new things all the time too.
0: <laughs> well, it sounds like with all the bands that you're working with and, you yeah. know, current and future projects and mm-hmm. stuff like that, it's like you, you got a real full plate yeah. in being a parent, you know?
1: Yep. That's, yeah. I, I just, especially with music, it's, it's, it's so interesting to play with different people and. I've never been the kind of person that's like, this is my band and this is my only band. And this is the only band I'll ever play in and I'll always be in this band like Metallica. You right. know, like they're three, you know, three of those guys have been in the band since 1983 and that's what they do, period. Mm-hmm. I'm Metallica. I'm in Metallica and that's, and we are Metallica. And, you know, I can do that, but I've never had anything go that like screaming successfully. Sure. You know, so it's like, okay, there's the practical side where you have to like, make money and do stuff so you can put all this you know passionate energy into something and you know if you don't get money in return you have to do something else yeah and you can keep that going and keep it going and keep it going and keep it going because it doesn't there's nothing nothing necessitating stopping that but at the same time you gotta make the money yeah well it's
0: time and energy that goes into everything that you do as well so
1: Mm -hmm. yeah I guess so describing myself I'm practical (laughs) (laughs) as well
0: (laughs) Do you have a routine or a process that helps you do your best work?
1: Mhm. Yeah, um it's a um get up and breathe and go on. Okay. <laughs> you know, like I I I always the one of the things I've ha- I've done to learn a better process for myself is I, I do um uh, emotional therapy. It's a it's been a really important process in my life to you know, get, get into underneath the surface of, you know, certain, certain things happened to me when I was a, when I was a, a young lad that didn't work well for me. And I knew that I needed to have, I I went through my first divorce when I was, when I was 35. So, or my only divorce really, but, um, and I wanted to, I wanted to be a better dad. You know, I wanted, I knew I was being a good father at the time, but There's some things happened during that time that it just struck me that I needed to do more and, um, sort of like that moment of clarity that alcoholics go through, a moment of clarity that I needed to be more there for myself and, you know, um, make sure that I was taken care of and that my heart was protected. And, you know, I was, I was always very good at getting things for other people. Anything that anybody desired, I'd figure out how to get it for them, you know, like, I mean, I couldn't get him, like, millions of dollars or whatever, but I could get him all kinds of other stuff, you know, and always through ethical, legal. No, it it just was like, so at the end of that marriage, I just felt really depleted, and I wanted to be more, you know, it sounds selfish to say, but I wanted to get things more for me, you know. You know, my music has been, like, during that time period, it it did okay, But since that time, when I really started focusing on what I want in this life, and you know, my ex-wife's a wonderful person, just we weren't really compatible, and I needed something for me that was went so far beyond what I was getting at the time that I wasn't able to get it any other way, right? And then to leave, so I just um, went for that, and at the time, I started. I asked my I asked the uh, the guy who was doing our mediation I was like what am I doing wrong? I need to figure something out here something's not right. Mm. And he said I want you to look check out these books and he gave me some books like about gestalt therapy and and I was like gestalt okay that's interesting so I did some re- research on it and I found a gestalt therapist that I've been working with ever since since 2011 And he is just one of the most brilliant people I've ever known. And um, he's become probably more of a coach than he is like a therapist. But, I mean, we still work on that stuff too. Sure. You know, just ways to like, you know, think about things that are more healthy. And, you know, I do my best to, to make my best decisions in my life. And sometimes I, you know, sometimes I need a lot of advice because, you know, music as a business and stuff like that it's complicated and uh with an emotional mindset you know like the the empath mindset when you have to make heavy intellectual decisions without emotion involved (laughs) it can be really challenging oh yeah because the emotion gets involved and you're like how do i separate these two things and he taught me that it's like if you're feeling really really scared you know like your intuition is telling you something. There's a reason you shouldn't be making that decision. Mm-hmm. Intellectually, it's telling you that you intellectually, it's telling you something that that seems like a good idea. But somewhere in your feeling, you're picking up vibrations big time that something's not right. Yeah. And so I just started listening to those signals. And little by little, things have just grown and gotten better. And, um, to answer your question like the routine and process is weekly I go see this guy and he is you know just sometimes just like mundane weekly challenges you know i talk to him about and try to figure out you know what my role in things is and learn how to take better responsibility for my life and you know methods for you know just improving things and um, I think that process has totally changed how i be creative and i've because it allowed me first of all to socially function better with more types of people okay you know sure. it got me into you know you know any anxiety that i've had you know in the past like i think i have like a a, a small anxiety problem you know you some people don't know they have anxiety and they drink because they think that like Oh, I just feel better when I drink a little bit. You know, it's more easy to to be social, and it's like no, that's not just it. You know, I I had something a little bit more beyond that, and so working through all those those issues has really given me some personal power that like I didn't have before, and making making that making that a priority helped me, you know, in social interactions with people who are writing because no matter what you do, I mean like being. They say being cool, you know, like just be cool, man, be cool, you know, and it's like, Okay, well like if somebody doesn't like my idea and they say it in a really rude way, how do you move forward? Are they joking? You know, like, okay, you know, but then you start to get into this place where it's like, Okay, is this person just really not working with me? Mm. And then not take it on myself. Right. You know, and or stand up for myself and say, Hey man, don't talk to me like that and if you continue this this project is over you know, it's like, it's a really, it's powerful, you know, and like learning to maintain a calm and not be dramatic when you're having those moments and just be like, that's not cool with me. I need to move on.
0: Yeah. Well, having boundaries, right. Mm -hmm. And what's acceptable and what's not.
1: Yeah, Yeah. exactly. So, you know, like that process of learning all those things has really, really fostered a whole new avenue for me in working with people and, um, and I work on it every day. Yeah, it's that's that's an everyday thing where I wake up if I feel anxiety, I'm like, okay, do my little things that help me get back into the world and out of my head and connect with connect with people, Mm -hmm. connect with my daughter in a better way and, you know, learn how to help her get through her challenges of the day. And, you know, it gives me it gives me purpose to do these things. Yeah. And, you know, some people don't have the same resources that I had and was, one of them was a mom that was a really caring and was just like hey you know you're going through some stuff right now you might need a little help you know consider this Yeah. I'm not telling you you have to do it I don't want to tell you what to do but just consider this because it seems like you have like a bit of anxiety that you're not dealing with and like having a resource like that alone was a huge huge benefit to me Yeah. and and in that way, I started surrounding myself with friends that were a little bit more um, empathetic and, you know, uh, on top of their game emotionally and, you know, built a support system of, of brothers that, yeah. that, like, know when they... When I, I need to know when they have my back and stuff. So it really helped a lot to go through that, so
0: what are some important tips or advice you would give to aspiring young musicians or artists?
1: Okay. Uh, work every day. Um, artists, you know, like some people, I've, I've had people accuse me of not being a hard worker. And to those people, um, sorry, <clears throat> have one finger for you. <laughs> no, uh, seriously, like, but work every day, you know, like, okay. if you're going to, be if you're not actually at a job doing work for someone else or for yourself pick up your guitar and play Write. fill your phone with all kinds of ideas you know fill your fill your recording devices with everything that you can think of fill i mean i have like 15 journals laying around of like you know brain spew you know stream of consciousness writing and lyrics and fragments of poems one-liners you know jokes anything i can think of to just like keep track of i do that yeah so if you're going to be an artist or like a guitar teacher keep track of all your ideas you know like you know figure out sayings that help your students learn better you know do those things that like really foster other people's lives too mm-hmm. you know like if i if i had one bit of advice for you if you're an alcoholic. Or you have severe anxiety if maybe you're not even sure why you don't have like good social relationships with people, you know, or you find yourself in emotion- emotionally abusive relationships with men and women you know or l g b t q whatever <laughs> uh, any place that you find yourself in those do everything you can to get with healthy safe people, and do you will do your best work no matter what you know if you're with those people and Um, everything, you know, the best advice I can give is like, you know, do the things that make your heart safe. And like, if that's writing metal songs with a country singer, do that. You know, if it's writing, you know, reggae songs with, you know, Britney Spears, do that. (laughs) You know, whatever it is that you can do to make yourself feel joyous. And I, I spent a lot of time playing music that made other people happy. You know, like I went Part of the reason i I studied jazz so intensely is because I wanted to make myself the best possible, whatever other people wanted me to be mm. musician, yeah, you know, and as I got and even though I love jazz now, you know at the time it was really hard for me to play because I just didn't have that experience and and in the interim between then and now. I really just spent a lot of time deciding, sitting with myself going, what do I really love? Mm-hmm. What do I really 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 love? And that was the biggest difference in the world. And you know, you know, I went from playing little little tiny clubs to 8 9,000 people, you yeah. know, playing on cruises with, you know, the best bands of the of the 80s and you know, learning from them and talking to them and like learning how to have a conversation with somebody who used to worship on MTV. You know, I got into a weird conversation with Nuno Betancourt one time and I was just like, (laughs) my, my little kid was going, that's fucking Nuno, dude. (laughs) 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 You're not worthy. And I'm like, yes, I am. (laughs) But you know, it's like, um, that, that doing all the, that work, best advice i can give you is just learn how to do that work the best you can yeah you know
0: uh speaking of working with famous musicians so you played with metallica i did can you tell us about that
1: yeah um that happened in 2004 um i won a radio contest that my friend jason thomas jt (laughs) (laughs) jason thomas walked into my music studio and he goes Dude, there's this Metallica contest where you get to jam with Metallica. You need to go win this, and I'm just like, "What are you talking about?" And he's like, "He's like, dude, c- c- come here." You know, so we turn on KUFO, which is the old rock radio station in Portland, Oregon, KU- KUFO 101.1. And, That's right. Uh, Court Dan Bozik, what's up, y'all? <laughs> uh, no, they uh, they they were running a contest, and you had to play in studio to see who could win to play with Metallica. So. I played battery on the phone to them and they were just like, oh my God, dude, get your ass down here. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I went in there and, you know, they were like, what do you want to play? And I, I played one and when I heard it played back on the radio, I was like, oh man, you can't hear my guitar. And then when my guitar stopped and I heard the rest of the song playing, I was like, oh, that was me, you know? I played it so tight with the song, like when I stopped, you could hear the band. It was like you could fade me in and out, and it would sound like I was playing perfectly with the band. Wow. I, I, I mean, looking back going, I'm just like, how the fuck did I do that? You know? <laughs> I don't... I It doesn't make sense to me now that...
0: Well, you spent plenty of time playing that song. I'm sure you got all the little nuances and everything. Yeah. I've seen the video, too.
1: Um, yeah. That, so
0: you, you, uh, you played with them live, or just the backstage,
2: or um, both...
1: In the backstage area, okay, yeah, only, yeah, and yeah. the the way that all worked was, you know, I the way I actually got to that mm-hmm. was I had figured out like the campaigning thing, okay. So I figured out how to get people to vote for me. So I went to like five message boards and like called everybody in my family, and I was like, dude, you gotta check this out. And I sent emails out. I had a whole emailing list at the time. I mean, like got 2004. I was already like on my shit about yeah. like getting, getting the word out and i had my own website and everything all at the same time and i actually posted the voting link on my website and you know sent out links to everything every place i could on the internet i actually had people in six different countries voting for me wow that i know about that's cool and so that that went getting to play with them backstage was like it was really really intense man because the 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 roadie guy that was kind of sequestering me into the room he's just like So, uh, you ready to play? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, he's like, you know, they tune a half step down. And I was like, well, my guitar is like in E and I have a floating bridge and he's just like, well, figure it out. And I'm like, can I play one of their guitars? And he's like, no, what are you talking about? Fix your guitar. And I was like, Oh, okay. So I'm down on one knee, like tuning my guitar, just like, in total guitar tech mode. I <laughs> See you rolling your eyes with a floating bridge.
0: That is not easy. <laughs> it is not quick.
1: So I, I, I did this thing and I'm down there and he's laughing at me. He's like, huh, you're not even good. You're going to, you're going to fail at this dude. What, what are you doing? And I looked up at him and I was just like, I'm not going to fail, dude. I'm going to kick ass period. And he was just like, Oh, okay. And that was at that <laughs> moment. I realized he was totally fucking with me <laughs> he was pushing he was pushing me to see what I was gonna do wow. he wanted to figure out like if I had
0: if you were the real deal or just yeah. some some kid with a guitar
1: yeah he wanted he was kind of trying to figure out like if I was yeah the real deal Wow. and when I went in there and I started calling tunes and they were like okay sure and I thought I was th- I'm sure that they were thinking oh we'll stop after the first chorus right you know and we played one together and like we played the whole song I have it. I have it on audio, and that video is just like a thirty-second clip. Okay. But we played the whole thing, and I can see Lars just looking at me like, "Dude," and I'm like looking at him like, "Don't hold back, you know, like come on, you know." And he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah," and so he starts getting into it like the live performance, and little by little, those guys were just like getting more and more excited. And then I started playing that harmony solo for the right? Kirk, for the Kirk solo. Yeah, yeah. They were like, Kirk was just like, "Holy shit, this kid can play," you know. And I I'm still just like. In awe of the opportunity that yeah. I had to play, and that video now has been looked at like three and a half million times, almost four million times. Nice. So I feel lucky to have that experience, and uh, that has gotten me some gigs actually. Well,
0: and they got <laughs> and they got to play with you too, you know. So that's that's good. right. Yeah,
1: James so. Hetfield has now played with Brandon Cook. That's right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: so. Yeah, <laughs> Lars and Kirk, you can put that on your resume. now.
1: That's right. Yeah. Uh, the re—I think the reason I was able to play that that well with those guys, I, I had an experience of studying with Marty Friedman the summer before that.
0: Yeah, do you want to talk about that? If that' because okay? yeah. that was in Japan, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: My, okay. my 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 ex wife was Japanese, and we used to go to Japan every summer. And actually, one one year we went twice, and uh, I had studied. I had figured out how to get a lesson with Al Petrelli, who was in Trans Siberian Orchestra and Megadeth at the time, and when when we were talking, like he he liked me, like and, you know I think we had a, a a nice a nice connection at the time, and we've kind of lost touch since then. But he's a really good dude, and he he was just like, man, anytime you need anything, just let me know. Very cool. And I was like, okay, cool. So later that summer, I was like, you know, just doing my daily scour of the internet, looking for gigs, you know, just trying to like any opportunity I could to like, that's how I found the Al thing. Because every day I get on the computer and remember this work every day thing, guys, (laughs) I get on the internet every single day and scour blabbermouth.net and Brave Words, Bloody Knuckles for gigs. I'd be like, what metal band needs a guitar player? What metal band needs a guitar player? What metal band needs a guitar player? And that was my thing. Because I had just gotten out of college and I wasn't going to sit around doing nothing. You know, so I was really like hammering it all the time. And when I came across this article about Marty Friedman putting out a new record because he had just left Megadeth two years before, I was like, he needs a guitarist on it. You know, I knew he had any guitar player on the planet oh. at his at his disposal. Any anybody that had a career, he could have had that. I didn't even have a career yet. So I was just like, called Al, and I'm like, dude, Marty Friedman's putting out a record. What do you think? And he goes, call him, tell him you know me. And I was just like, okay, <laughs> all right. So I did, and it 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 went really well because I had I had actually auditioned for an ex Megadeth project at the time. Okay. It had Al Petrelli, David Ellison and a whole bunch of other people in it. Marty, Chris Poland were possibly going to be involved and i think nick menza might have been no jimmy DeGrasso was the drummer and i sent out a, a demo to them and the, the all those guys every time i ran into them they'd be like yeah i have your i have your photograph on my desk at home <laughs> and they literally said those words to me wow. <laughs> i was just yeah. like oh shit <laughs> this is cool <laughs> and when i when i ended up touching bass with marty he was like yeah send me something because i don't think he, he was in the con he was in the process of moving okay and I sent it to him and he's like oh yeah I have a copy of this already I've heard you play you're good I was like what (laughs) he said yeah yeah your voice just wasn't really what we were looking for we were looking for more like a Chris Cornell thing and you kind of have like a prog rock thing is not not really what we're looking for but it was good I liked it I was like oh so I have a shot at this you know and uh, I had recorded a demo with my friend Paul Lamb that I was telling you about and sent that would use that as my demo Um, Marty was like, send me three songs of my stuff. So I had to re-record a bunch of like Marty Friedman stuff. And I, I did that. And I sent him out and he was just like, "Yeah, you're kind of got some things you need to work on, you know? And he told me a list of things I needed to work on. And, you know, I, I messaged him like once a week for eight weeks. And finally he was just like, you know, what you sent me before just wasn't really up to snuff, learn three of my new songs and send them to me and we'll talk. So I went into the studio, and I, sent, and I called this guy to, to do it, and he helped me get this demo together. And by the way, this is part of like, what you should do to get into the music industry, fed, fellas. Um, I recorded a demo, and I was having trouble finding band members that played the kind of music I wanted to play because yeah. that, so- that sound was really out of vogue. You know, It was coming back into style, but it was really... In Portland, Oregon, there was nobody that played metal. You know, nobody that was really serious about it anyway. There was like, you know, kids and stuff that weren't quite ready. And I was, you know, in my mid-twenties. already been through music school and had a, you know, kind of a drive about doing things that other people weren't really doing. So, um, the, I got the demo done. I sent it to Marty and he was just like, whoa, you just totally replicated three of my songs. And I, I mean, I played like, I paid 300 bucks. You know, he's like, you just completely replicated my songs with drums and everything, you know. And I didn't use the backing track. I didn't use his songs as backing tracks or anything. I just did it. I played bass and everything. Wow. And he was like, so my friend programmed some drum tracks, and and he was just like, oh my god, you're on a short list. This is really really good, you know. And there had been some editing done that I wasn't really aware wasn't wasn't right to do. Oh, okay. You know, like in an audition situation sure you know he, marty needed a, a little bit more raw version of it probably just to really get a, an idea of how, how i played but we did some you know some minor editing like i was rushing a little bit and he, you know he pulled me back into the pocket and just to make it sound professional right and i kept practicing of course but there was just some things i didn't know and when i met marty he was just like whoa you know there's your rhythm needs a little work and so i set, spent the next i went to Japan. After he agreed to let me come, because he was like, I can't guarantee you a gig, because I need to meet you, you know, are you going to, is there a way we can, and I'm just like, well, I'm coming to Japan this summer, I could just come a few weeks early, and he's like, yeah, okay, so the day I get there, I message him, I'm like, hey, I'm in town, and he goes, meet me tomorrow at Shinjuku Station, and I'm just like, oh, okay, you know, like, he wasn't, right, he was not screwing around, it's like, if you're going to do this, you can do it on no sleep, and jet lagged you know it was like a perfect test yeah you know and so i got my shit together and went down there and brought my guitar to shinjuku station and marty friedman is standing in shinjuku station with sunglasses on and shorts and and converse waiting for me and i'm just like this is ridiculous (laughs) (laughs) i'm just losing it right now and so my ultimate guitar hero of all time is waiting in the station for me so i go to his apartment and we we like he he auditioned me and he was like eh, you know things are pretty good you know i think you need some work on this and that and he kind of treated me like a guitar teacher you know right and i think he was soft shooing me a little bit just because he didn't know me and didn't know what my reaction would be and so the next time i went there um to meet him it was a few weeks later and i was in japan for most of the summer i, mean, I think it was like eight weeks and it was about it was about three weeks later and my mom, was just like, you need to tell him that you need you want this job. She's like busting my balls like you need to tell him what you what you want. And so I called him and I was like, hey man, you know, I really want a job with you. I want to try this again. So he's like, all right. I was like, what should I bring? And he's just, bring your guitar. And we'll we'll try it again. So we get we get we get down there and I had I had spent a ton of time practicing just like practicing like mad. And I go in there and he just pillared a post. Like it was like a you know, like Hulk Hogan with one of those like, you know, tomato cans that they <laughs> used to wrestle with, like the the lame wrestlers that get, you know that they do on the TV wrestling. Right, right. So I mean, he just like ragdolled me all over the place, and I'm just like, finally, I was just like, he said something, and I was like, I was like, oh, am I not tight enough or something? I got sarcastic because I was getting I was getting handled. Sure. And he goes. And he goes, No, you're not playing tight enough. That's exactly right. You're not playing tight enough. And I was just like, Oh. All of a sudden it's real. Marty Friedman's in my face <laughs> You know, like he's not mean about it, but he was just like, Don't get sarcastic with me, kid. Right. You know, and and I was like, Okay, wait a second. So what am I doing wrong here? And he goes, You're doing this, this and that and I'm like, Well, I'm playing the song And he goes, No, you're tempting to play the song And that where it was like it got to the point where I was like, Oh okay, something's different here, you know? Because I was always, like, able to do whatever I wanted, right. you know? Any job I ever wanted, any gig I ever wanted, I could always get it, you know? Because it was just it's how I got it, and so I did.
0: It's a different arena.
1: Yeah, it was okay. a totally different level. Yeah, And so we sat, and after that, we talked for, like, two hours about, I mean, he spent, like, an ungodly amount of time with me, you yeah. know, just as, a, like, his student. He, like, totally pupiled me and he like he taught me about like playing tight with a metronome and he sort of demonstrated like look if this person over here had knew all my songs and could play them tighter than you you have so much more ability and like all these things going on you have knowledge you can read you can do all this stuff but i'd have to take this guy cuz he's tighter than you You know, he doesn't know a quarter of what you know, but he can play the songs better, and that's all there is to it. If you can't play the songs, because that
0: guy that's playing Marty Friedman stuff tighter than you probably never studied jazz, right? Probably played every Metallica and every Megadeth song and every, you know, everybody else that's in that ballpark, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. All that, all the metal that he was used to playing, right? You know, and I had, I knew all that stuff too. But one of the things I didn't have was like experience playing in those bands, right? You know, and like understanding like you have to be super tight touring three
0: hundred nights a year, you know, or whatever. Exactly uh, with with that specifically. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and playing the only song that you know, three hundred times right. a year. Yeah, and in in a, a two hour set or whatever. That is different. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: I mean, one of the bands I played with for a few years, um, you know, we rehearsed like ten or twelve songs, like. Mm-hmm. We rehearse three or four nights a week. Usually one song for about three hours. Yeah. Over and over and over again, you know. And it's a it's a different thing than, oh, you're learning forty songs to play this weekend or whatever. That's a totally different. Scenario. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah. And that's what I had been doing up until that point. Wow. You know, because I can learn songs like someone's played it to me like once or twice, and I'm I got it. You know. Yeah. But like being able to play Marty Freeman arrangements is. Pretty, not that I couldn't play them, it's just I couldn't play them that well, you know. The well, the as which, as he put it, was studio tight at the audition.
2: Because
1: mm. what happens if you need to go into the studio tomorrow? Right. You need to be ready. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, okay. You know, I'll tell you this right now. Like this is another, ep- another episode in the in the what I should tell my students to do, you know, or or people who are listening. That is. Um, Always be prepared for that, you know, like Mm -hmm. the best case scenario of actually getting the gig, you know, actually getting the gig. You have to be ready to be in that world. Yeah. So if you listen to your favorite record and you idolize that and you're like, I'm going to play in this band, you have to be at that level when they call you. You can't there's no six month ramp up like, you know, you do when you join a new band. There's no like it's like there's no rehearsals. It's like you're getting called because somebody got fired or somebody needs somebody and they have a new tour date that they said, you know, your favorite band just got called uh to do a festival in Europe and their their guitar player is sick and you have to go. You're going to get as soon as you get the yes, you're going to get an airline ticket in your email and you're on a plane. That's There's it. There's no time yeah
0: to prepare at that point. Yeah.
1: And so, like, I had spent six months or something, like, learning all this music, and I wasn't quite there. But there were certain key elements that I didn't, that I just didn't know I needed. Like, one of them, which was like practicing and playing extremely tightly with a metronome. Yeah. You know, and, you know, having that kind of experience in spades, you know, just knowing how to do that and how to make it happen is so difficult to do in a shorter amount of time if you've never done it before. Yeah. You know, because, you know, the, there's also sort of an arrogance like when you're in the 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 academic world it's like oh rock music sucks and rock music is 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 so lame why, why would you want to play that stuff and there's not everybody's that way but there's a, a good a good enough amount of it that it's like it gives you a little bit of a snobbery you know right. like you're like oh yeah i don't need that stuff i'm a, i'm a trained jazz musician i can do anything i want this is real music why can't it you know it doesn't have swing you know if I get in that band, it's going to have swing, you know? And they're like, no, if you're in my band, you sound like I want you to sound. Mm -hmm. And that's it. You know, like there's no discussing it. This is the artist. You make yourself sound like them. And uh, it was such an eye opener, a humbling, humbling experience, you know, to, you know, I didn't say, and I shouldn't say you people in general, I'm saying me, that's what I developed. You Mm -hmm. know, I developed a, a bit of an ego about like having, uh, um experience in in the jazz world and i had there was a lot of people around me that also had that attitude about music and you know, i always loved rock music rock music is my favorite thing it's always been my favorite thing and i sort of had this disdain for it because it was it wasn't real music you know <laughs> and
0: it's interesting. Yeah. Know,
1: and but it is. It's the most real music on the planet because that's what everybody pays for and listens to. You know, you have to like think of it in a practical milk, bread and butter kind of mindset. And Marty really taught me that. He's just like whatever gig you're going for, you got to be able to nail it first day. Period. And if you can't, sorry, we got somebody else in line that can. You know, and that's not And I'm walking back. I'm walking back uh, the third the third time I met with him, I had spent the the, about a month working on the songs and I asked him I was like don't hire anybody until you hear me again I just want one last audition and he was gracious enough to give that to me and I wasn't ready but he was like wow man that's some severe improvements in four weeks man you did a really great job however I have hired somebody and I want you to you know I want you to keep practicing the songs because if I call you there's gonna be an email that has an airline ticket in it so be ready if this doesn't work out, you're getting the call. And I was like, Okay, you know. And you know, Marty and I lost touch over the years when we've reconnected a little bit and my friend Jordan Ziffs and his band and just a really amazing band and you know, it I grew me grew me into a different direction and like I found all kinds of different things to do when I didn't get the job. You sure, know? But like it it made me that is like the lesson of a lifetime, you know, like it's like a martial artist getting to study with Bruce Lee, you know? It, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's yeah. such an unbelievable experience for me to have, you know, my my hero. And he had... It wasn't like he's my hero and he, like, didn't have anything to say. He just kicked my ass. Right. He had immense amounts of, of education to give me and, you know, show me in the, the field of music that I wanted to be in.
0: It wasn't like Whiplash.
1: Oh, no. Not at all. <laughs> no, he didn't throw a chair at me. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, you know, like... It felt like that inside. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah. like, oh my God, I'm getting my ass handed to me. Yeah. But it was it was a really ins- not a
0: lot of people are able to do that, Brandon. So <laughs> it's,
1: good.
0: it's good when you can have that experience. Yeah, it, it was really a, is good. Yeah. it's good for you to be able to be mentored in a in like real time mm-hmm. by somebody
1: like that. Yeah, um, I, I needed it. You know, I needed somebody like that because the academic world's a little bit soft on professional stuff. Like they don't really they don't really talk to you about professional development. They just right. talk to you about, like, these are the academics that you need to learn. And, you know, they don't go, well, if you're going to get this kind of gig, you need to be able to do this practical thing, hmm. period. Right. And as, as I learned that, I've actually changed my entire teaching philosophy hmm. to focus it in on people getting gigs. You know, like, okay, yeah, I'll learn your song, but now we're going to play it better. Now we're going to like refine this thing and we're going to smooth this out and we're going to do this and make sure that, well, you want to be a professional musician? Yeah. Okay. Well, then this is what you have to do, you know, and little by little, you know, I've created a like a, a teaching ethic that helped people get towards that. And I've had several people that like go on to do professional level music. They're not like touring the world or anything, but like they've had they've had really good solid music careers that like make – killer records and stuff like that so yeah yeah something anyway. to be proud of yeah feel good about that
0: uh what other mentors did you have along with the way that come to mind
1: um al petrelli was a was a good mentor because he uh you know i have, of course i had daryl grant and jerry Hahn, and they were really really wonderful in like getting me into you know where i needed to be daryl grant's probably my my most important teacher at portland state he he has an unbelievable level of skill and you know he's a jazz musician but he like really got me looking into more music that I like in that realm you know he turned me on to Mike Stern and John Schofield and he actually turned me on to Aerosmith you know I had gotten to the point where I wouldn't listen to rock because there was so every anytime I talked about rock in jazz school it was just like why are you listen to that crap for you know and so I was like oh yeah you know I was I was pretty naive so I started getting a little bit like disdainful of rock like I said And Daryl, he brought me a bunch of records because we had been talking about, like, stuff. And he brought me a Prince record and an Aerosmith record and, like, two John Schofield records and a Mike Stern album. And he's like, if you're going to be in jazz, you need to listen to this. And he hands it to me. And I was just like, oh, okay. And it really – he was instrumental in, like, helping me figure out, like, what I wanted to do. He actually came to one of my gigs one time. Wow. You know, I – Man, I, I, it was right after I had, um, I think it was right after I had studied with Marty. I did a, a gig, my very first State of Balance gig. And uh, the band was really, the bands were all my, my very good friends, and they were not driving towards being a career in music. Right. And I was just like pounding it, you know, really, come on, guys, you know. <laughs> and he, he was just like, Daryl thought it was good, but, you know, I think it was like, you know, it wasn't quite ready for world domination, let's right. say. And uh, so, like, Daryl's a good one. Like, Albatrelli, he really helped me out with, like, dealing with some of that stuff. You know, he was a really, really instrumental in, like, helping me sort of bridge the gap between academics and, and real music.
0: Yeah, that's another part of studying music, is that there is a, there is a gap. Between yeah. like what you do live and what you do in the real world versus mm-hmm. what, what your textbooks say.
1: Yeah, the textbooks really kind of they didn't they didn't quite give me like the real world uh, music ethic that I yeah. needed. Yeah, and part of that was just part of that was just like lack of experience, but part of it was just like being sort of an odd duck, you know, like a metal musician that wants to study jazz and classical. You know, and there just wasn't that many people around that I could find in Portland, Oregon to do that. Yeah. You know, and try to and I did end up finding some people like my friend Patrick Yaden and um the guys in this band called Rust, The Rust, and we uh we really like had a good thing going. I I learned we got this cover gig at the last second and I like learned all these classic rock solos by like, you know, Luke Ather at and you know, it's Neil Shawn and stuff like that. And I learned them really fast and they were just like, wow, man, you oh. learned those solos super fast. I'm like, yeah, well, you know, that's what that's I do. That's what you do. That's <laughs> what I do. <laughs> and, and, but, uh, the, they, they ended up being sort of like the next phase, you know, it's like, mm. well, you're writing all those songs, dude, and they don't really do what we want to do. So like make your own record. And I was like, okay. So I mean, Paul Lamb, my producer at the time, he was, he helped me kind of get to the next level of what I was doing. Um, I think, you know, like the appetite for deception was like the best internship I've ever had. You know, we got, I, I, w- I played with Chris Caffrey for a little while and that, uh, who was in Trans-Siberian Orchestra and Sabotage. That didn't go very well. You know, I think we just had conflicting personalities and it didn't really like, it didn't work for me. And also, you know, he, he, I was having a kid at the time and it was a, it was big pressure on me and he just kind of was like, dude, you can't do this both. You know, you have to, either you either have to choose dad or choose this. And I can't let you choose this, you know. Go home and be a dad, and we'll reconnect somewhere down the road. And part of that was an excuse, just because our comf- our personality was conflicting. But at the same time, I I respect the guy. He's he's an amazing musician, and it, I'll never ever say a bad word about him. You know, he's just a he's a amazing musician, great player. So um, he that was a really good thing but on the way home from that I was in literally like this is how my campaigning mind works it's like okay I don't have this gig so I need a gig oh. so I called I called my friend Jeff Johnson and I was like dude do you have any tribute bands that you're working with and he told me about Guns N' Roses thing I've been with those guys ever since and we sort of mentored each other it was like one of the first bands I was ever in like with mutual like cohorts yeah you know a real fully you know democratic band Everybody was pretty much at the same level of, like, development. Mike had made several, Mike Killian, my guitar player, he would made several records and worked with some really good bands, and um, my singer, Mark, he was, he was a good singer already, and just I think we all needed to figure out how to get to that professional level, mm-hmm. and um, we ended up finding a drummer named Andrew Green, and um, subsequently, uh, after my buddy Jeremy Walker left, we got um, John Michael Farley and that lineup that was formed in like 2010 it was five years later it took five years to kind of get to the point where we were like really smoking professional band and you know we that in itself was a mentorship you know like we all mentored each other we kicked each other's asses you you would have to yeah
0: yeah, that's a lot
1: because you know like doing november rain you know it's it's hard man I I mean, like to make it have musical and emotional connection to an audience that's really tough
0: i had a student that wanted to do that in in one of our student concerts and it's like yeah we have one rehearsal for this it's not gonna it's yeah. just not gonna fly as, exactly. a, as a as a live song without a lot of time put into it with with for each mm-hmm. member and the group you know
1: yeah we were the same way about rehearsing that you guys were i mean we didn't rehearse three or four nights a week but we got together a couple times a week two times I think usually and in a basement and you know our first drummer um, he was more of a jazz drummer and it didn't really work out you know just it was different different mindsets and on, on how to make music and um, once we got Andrew we, we really started like gelling as a group the rhythm section started working a lot better and it was just more of this that feel mm-hmm. you know there's a certain weight you have to have when you play 80s rock and he he knew how to get that yeah to happen And, man, just, like, the way we, it was destructive at some points. I mean, like, you talk appetite for destruction, man. It was just, like, explosive, you know, on stage. And me and and my friend Mark, we can just, like, I never knew I could run and play guitar solos at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) And it was just, like, we'd watch these Slash videos, like, videos of Slash and Axel just, like, running pillar to post on, you know, 100-foot stages. And it's, like, I could do that. And so I started doing it, and wow. all of a sudden I'm just like running over there, playing a solo, and walk shredding across the stage, and uh, just crazy, you know. It is. And you know, it was all about like making making a performance happen. Yeah. That was kind of stuff that I needed to be able to do when I got to the Marty Friedman band, right, <laughs> right. And I just wasn't there yet, so makes sense. Anyway, that was a huge mentorship for me. But my next newest mentor, like after those guys um, was working with, with black and blue. And like the two guys in that group that really, really sho- showed me how to play music at the absolute pinnacle of music is, is Patrick Young, the bass player and Pete Holmes. Pete Holmes is the drummer of Rat, but he's also played with, um, um, uh, he's played with, uh, Michael Schenker and, um, Ul- Ulrich Roth. I mean, Several of the greatest guitar players on the planet. Yeah, he's he was actually in Ian Gillen from Deep Purple's solo band. Wow. And like Patrick Young, he's played with Black and Blue, you know, for thirty-five years, and the, so is Pete. Pete's played with Black and Blue, and those guys have, you know, got me even past the level that I had attained with, you know, all the other experiences I've had, and it's you know you think you think you've kind of got your shit together and then like you meet pete holmes and he's just like no not really (laughs) let's i got some stuff i need you to work on you know and like yeah okay cool now i get to spend some time with you in a hotel room chatting about like what it is you want me to do yeah and you know that has been like a huge 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 change in the way I, i played and then so Patrick Young also he he's my sort of like my daily guy. You know we work we rehearse a lot together and you know he just he pushed me. You know he really like was like no we have to maintain this now. It's like we want to be ready by this time so that when we actually hit the stage when not, I'm not worried that you're not ready. You know right. and like okay so we're we're we have a gig in July. I want to be ready to be playing on stage by June first. You know and then that all we're working on at that point is stage moves. You know, like where you're gonna stand, you know, background vocals, tweaks to the tuning, you know, like, oh, by the way, can you do that with a uh uh instead of a uh uh uh, you know? Right. right. The, the little detail work that you have to do for like months before you're ready for that full swing st- stage show. Wow. And uh, so that, like, all that detail work between those two guys, you know, really pushed me for like working with Rob Dacre and Jeff Buner. And I mean, I should even, before I even get to them, like, uh, there's a woman named Delana who is, uh, she, she's a South African artist who lives in Holland currently. And Delana was on Rockstar Supernova. And Jeff Buhner, my my songwriting partner, he actually got us hooked up with her to do some shows. And she really was instrumental in making me see that I was as good as I could be you know, like she was like, she saw something in me when we first met and she'd get irritated with me. She's just like, and I realized finally why she was getting irritated with me a couple of years later. It's like sitting there and we had this gig and she wasn't irritated with me at this particular gig. She was just kind of like, what the hell, man? And I'm like, come on, you know, whoever it was, she was bitching it. <laughs> and it's okay, you know, cause it was important. And what I'm getting to is like, I had this epiphany. It's like, even when you have, you know, like, You know doesn't seem like a very high stakes gig you have to play at the peak of your pedigree at that time you know even mistakes are sort of like you have to play the best mistake you ever played you know and so like when you are the way i put it was like playing up to your pedigree and she she didn't teach me that but that was the ethic she was trying to teach me Mm -hmm. she didn't know how to explain it because she wasn't a music teacher she didn't need to go like you know it's not like just playing with a metronome It's playing with an authority that surpasses anything about technical skill or musical knowledge or like who you've played with. It's, I mean, and over the years working with her, she's demonstrated that to me. And the last last time I hung with her in LA, it really kind of got to a new fever pitch. We went out, she played, she took me to this bar uh, called Poncho's and we, we watched some of my favorite musicians play Literally. I mean, like, this guy Joe Travers played with Dweezil Zappa and Joe Satriani. And I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> I know him. And she's like, well, you're going to play with him. I'm going to tell them that you're awesome and you're going to play with him. And I am like, <laughs> you know, Eric Dover from Jellyfish, and he played with Slash. Wow. I-, I got to play Sweet Child of Mine with that guy. Wow. So he's singing perfect Sweet Child of Mine at concert pitch, not half step down. Wow. And, like, I know Joe Travers didn't know the song. He probably played it a few times, but, like, he <laughs> played it better than I've ever played it. Wow. And, like, we had a, a guitar player named Walter Eno playing, and uh, he uh he's a really great keyboard player who plays with, like, the babies and stuff like that. And this other dude, um, his name's Coco Powell, and he plays with Edgar Winter. So I get up on stage with these guys, and I play. And after sitting with Delana, listening to the band, we were sitting there listening for like two hours, you know, drinking wine and just laughing and joking. And she, every time something really awesome happens, she'd be like, listen, listen to this. And she's like, I can't explain this to you, but you have to do this every time you play. This is what, like, if you want to be at the level of like LA musicians and like all the people you worship and stuff like that, this is what you have to do every time you play. Wow. And it, and I I was asking, you know, mm-hmm. I, she wasn't just like lecturing sure, me.
0: No, that, that's great. To have that experience, I think it's mm-hmm. you know, without that, how do you learn it?
1: Yeah, I had. How to, did
0: they learn it?
1: Uh, they they had the same conversation Probably with somebody with somebody, yeah. <laughs> and I just really wanted to be, I wanted to be able to have that level at all times. And now I'm sort of trying to, you know, like implement that with other things that I'm doing and. It's hard, you know, yeah. because like people think they you're criticizing or you don't like them because you say like, "Hey, check this out," you know, and that's not really what it is. It's all about like everybody growing all the time, right? You know, because we're all growing anyway, you know. For sure. And and there's a permission that you sort of have to have to like talk about that stuff, because it's a vulnerable place to be. You know, mm-hmm. we put musicians especially, we put everything we have into doing this because you don't get it's not for pay, you know. But to to really super entertain people, like when we were sitting in that bar, literally it's called Ponchos, people are sitting around eating chips and salsa and burritos. It's 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 a taco bar. Right. It cost, it's like, it's $12 for a <laughs> glass of whiskey, but you know, it's like, it's still just a taco bar. Right. And these guys are playing the best music you've ever heard because they're not on tour with Satriani or Edgar Winner. They're yeah. just like, oh, it's my weekend gig, you know? But every other time you see them, they're on three hundred dates a year, and they got to do something when they're not. Yeah. Working, they got to keep the chops up.
0: Keep the chops up, yeah.
1: So like that mentorship that I've had with Delana over the last five years, six years since two thousand twelve, you know, she's she's always kept you know me in her thoughts, and she's always been really sweet to me, and like you know, like there's been times when I did some stupid stuff, and like she got pissed at me and that stuff, but I I kind of look back and took responsibility for like how I acted or how I didn't play what I needed to play. And it was always like, you know, I think she was upset because she didn't know how to say what she wanted to say. Sure. But at the same, and also at the same time, it's like, she's like, dude, you are way easily good enough to play this stuff. Right. Why are you not doing what you're supposed to do? That's your, all you're supposed to do is play it right. You know? And it ended up boiling down to like playing with authority, you know, like really maintaining that, high level of authority with the way you play it's not telling other people how to play it's playing with absolute authority over yourself yeah you know and being like if you're playing you know acoustic strummy it's so authoritative that your singer doesn't get nervous and sing out of tune you know mm-hmm. or like it's got such a, a time feel of its own you don't need a metronome you know it's maintaining that thing the entire time that you're playing not losing your concentration and
0: a hard thing to teach someone yeah it's very hard
1: yeah and if you're around it all the time like i spent two weeks in la at that time and like by the time of the week had ended everybody i'd played with i'd played like 10 performances while i was down there and i got into a bunch of jams and stuff like that and it was just it just changed me yeah you know the perception of how refined that level of play is is just like Oh, I can't go back to that. You know, I can't go back to where I was before now. Been to the mountain. So <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And asking asking your other players that have never experienced that to do that is like all of a sudden you're like, okay, if I say this, I'm gonna look like an egomaniac. Mm-hmm. You know, but I can't not say it. So what do you do?
0: Right. For everybody's yeah, having that pointed out.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. That's gotta be a tough conversation.
1: Yeah, it can be. I mean, like I I try to make it easy. Mm-hmm but I also try to, you know, there's a certain, there's a certain like, uh, I don't responsibility. Know. Yeah. With
0: Res- great power comes great responsibility.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. The yeah. spider, the old Sp- spider-man was That's one of my right. heroes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, exactly. Great power comes great responsibility. And like wielding that kind of responsibility is like walk softly, carry a big stick. Yeah. You know, you have to, everyone has to know you have that power, but you have to be gentle and, and explain it in a way that, Makes sense to them. Right. You know, this person with a whole lifetime of experience believes something different than you at the moment. And how do you get that across to them without offending them or hurting their feelings in a very serious way? Yeah. You know, and that's really difficult. So, um, you know, I mean, some people are like they they let, you know, water off a of duck's back, but at the same time, you don't know if they've taken it personally. Right. You know, and it's for me it's never personal it's more about the music but at the same time you can still look like a dick no matter how soft you say it you know and that's that's just the challenge of being you know who i am
0: well like we've talked about the different levels of things right you know yeah. if you're playing an acoustic you know thing at the pizza place down the road it's it's not the same level as when you're doing pro gigs or trying to get to a pro level with a group you yeah know? so then you need to be able to have those difficult conversations that's why yeah. the band is professional you know
1: yeah so and i think that's that's definitely i mean like bringing it back to earlier conversation of like my process of like learning you know better communication skills with my therapist and and you know life coach i guess mm-hmm. um, learning how to have those difficult conversations without uh, and ultimately what I've figured out is like having those diff- difficult conversations, you have to be able to have them. And if the person that you're working with can't deal with it, then maybe they're not ready. Right. You know, and, you know, I can't blame them. You know, it's not a personal thing. It's just like, okay, sure. well, if you're not, if they're not ready, it's my choice to continue with this or discontinue. Mm-hmm. And what I really want to, you know, then I just, I what I've done is like I just refocus my energy to the projects that allow that. Yeah, and if they are allowing me, or like they're seeing that I'm adding value to what they're doing, then that's where I continue. And yeah, I put I focus my energies to those things, and usually, uh, usually it goes over pretty well. But when it doesn't, it's really hard because you really, you really do know. I mean, it's not like you're saying I know what's best for this group, you know. But at the same time, it's like you see what, you see what you're doing in the past and what you can be capable of right. in the fu- in the in the current how do you get them to there in the future mm-hmm. you know and if someone's really really resistant to listening to what you have to say and believing that you're just being an egomaniac when you say it that doesn't translate very well so you have to I mean there's no translation for I'm being nice right necessarily it, you have to you have to translate it yourself you have to be like okay this guy's trying he's 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 loving me right now he's really attempting to love me he's loving trying to love this band and love this music and he's he's trying to ask in the most polite way he can without hurting my feelings okay i'm gonna go along with this right you know or the converse (laughs) i see what you're trying to do here and go fuck yourself (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's okay on this podcast but yeah
0: (laughs) yeah we have all kinds of language it's okay what do you think are skills that everybody should learn
1: that's a good question. Um, skills everyone should learn would be like you know, is music is music. Everyone. Oh. But it could be music. Oh, okay. Um, skills everyone should learn. Um, I really think that communication, especially person I'm talking about person to person, sitting next to somebody talking communication and being able to get across your ideas uh on I think these four levels physical emotional, intellectual and spiritual. Okay. And really being able to get those across in a, an organic way is is paramount to anything else in life. And because if I mean like we all live in our own little bubble, literally our head is like like our little calcium-based skull is our bubble. Our head, our brain is inside there and everything that we see and hear and touch and taste and feel is all in there. That's our bubble. So how do we get out of that in a constructive way and communicate? You know, they say ninety percent or what is it, seventy percent of our communication comes through our body. Yeah. You know, non non nonverbal. You know, so you could say all kinds of stuff, but if you don't say it with your body, people don't believe you. You know, and like if you can't see someone's body, you know, how can you know what they really mean sometimes with their words? So, like, people base all their communication off, like, black and white text on, on Facebook. But they're not seeing that this person's just having an anxiety attack and they need some help, you know. And so, like, really, it doesn't connect. So, like, most of the communication we do, probably 95% of the communication that we do right now is not connected person to person. True. And so, if, you're, if you are doing anything in this life worth doing learn to communicate person to person better and better and better every day. You know, you can be a teenager all your life if you want to. And no one, there's nobody in America that's allowed to make you be different, you know, because we have freedom of speech and freedom of choice here. But if you want to have a happy life and you want to have a functional, like working life with your family and, and friends and business associates and stuff like that, learn to communicate on every level that you can physical body language is a huge part of it like if you if you have like like an imposing intimidating body language that like makes everybody feel uncomfortable around you because you're like twitchy and like aggressive with your body language people are gonna feel like weird yeah but you know people can feel that way even if you're just bigger than them so some of that's on them and that's part of communication like realizing what's you and what's them right you know like so, like, if I had, like, a skill that I would want, you know, my daughter to learn uh, is learn how to communicate in a way that makes sense to the person you're talking to. And that that requires a lot of empathy and, and compassion. Yeah. You know, really understanding that I'm not the only person in this room, and I'm not the only person that is making a decision at this time. Somebody else is making a decision, too. Yeah. And in fact, 8 billion other people on this planet are making different decisions based on micronomic differences of perspective um and we all have to survive you know and it's really that's really hard to think of you know it is yeah and so what i think that like making making connection with just like me and you talking you know yeah is like is that that's one more way to to spread healthy communication I'm no, not, not just healthy. I mean like functional, effective communication, you know, healthy. I mean, I think healthy is functional and effective, True. true. <laughs> but it also takes a lot of effort too. You know, if you're like, if you're, if you don't put the effort into communicating well, you're not going to get a good response. That's true. You know, and you know, it, it takes, it, you know, with the amount of abuse and stuff like that that goes on in the world. I mean, I can't imagine that like, Women, one in four of whom get raped or sexually assaulted in college, you know, that, I can't believe that they would want to risk c- communicating with people all that much, you know, with knowing just the basic statistics, not to mention just the stuff that's not reported, right? you know, uh, of people getting violently assaulted how, or, like, stalked or whatever it is. And, like, so, like, there's a 50% of our population that's terrified to talk to men, you know. You know, impre- it's,
0: a, it's a tough thing it's a it's a tough situation for everybody
1: yeah and so like if I was a man you know which I am <laughs> I'm a man um, you know I would, I would tell my my co-men of the world learn to communicate more effectively and you know women too I mean it's important you know like women tend to be like better communicators than men that's statistically factual um, but even then you know it's like we have to learn to communicate with each other You know, Mm -hmm. it's not just like men against women, it's men with women and women with men and, you know, all in between LGBTQ plus, you know, everybody, you know, learning to communicate in a more loving, gentle, you know, compassionate way.
0: Yeah. Beautifully put. Thanks. What are some of the best lessons that you've learned and also taught?
1: Um, I think I just did one of them. (laughs) But, uh, you know, um, I think honesty with my daughter you know working on like talking talking about like being being honest with people but like um i think that's that's i mean it, man there's so many good ones um i think the best lesson i've learned for myself is that um helping others has a limit you know like really you can only help with the capacity of resources that you have.
0: Okay. You know,
1: and if you, if you, I mean, like I love to help people and it's one of my, my great life passions to help other people. At some point, um, helping other people becomes detrimental to your own self. Mm -hmm. And if it becomes to that place, you can't effectively help people. You're not a hero. You can't, you can't dramatically change someone's life without their consent. And, you know, That goes with people who are really emotionally ill and, you know, they they don't know that they, you know, everyone would say, you know, certain kinds of people would need help. But if they don't know they need it because they're emotionally distraught in some way, they're not going to want the help that you're asking for, even though they're begging for it. They're like, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. And then you go, well, I'm here and I'm available. I'll help you. Okay, help me. Thank you. And then they dive back in the water and say, Help me, help me, help me again. It's ten minutes later. Right. You know, that kind of thing. Like that's the best lesson I ever learned is that I can't help that. You know, and so I have to help me. And then I can go, I can the best way to help them is to go stand up in the water because <laughs> I'm not doing it. Right. You know. And usually those people somehow learn how to swim real fast. <laughs> so, um, the, you know, not everybody... I think the other lesson in that is that not everybody has um, positive motives. That's true. You know, and...
0: It's unfortunate,
1: but true. It, sure. it is, and uh, I wish it was... I wish it wasn't that way, but it's definitely taught me to be more um, more compassionate to the people that receive it well, you know, and people that want compassion, you know, that can give it um, are people I spend most of my time with, so
0: yeah, surrounding yourself with good people helps a lot,
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, safe people, yeah, safe people that know how to like when because you know when you enter like relationships with people, you know no matter how deep, you know they have to be able to handle your heart, you know, your heart's important, and if you if they don't understand that, they gotta go, yeah, <laughs> so um i'm I feel really lucky to have like a really awesome group of friends right now. So
0: nice.
1: Yeah, that's a good lesson.
0: How does a person balance life, family, creativity and their work?
1: Mm, that's that's a tough question. Um, I think for me, like the best way that I've learned how to to balance it is um, take away measurements of, of how to balance that. It's like um, you just sort of have to do the, the needs of the day. Um,
0: like, so one day you're looking at. Yeah. Like, what are the needs today?
1: Yeah, exactly. It's it's very it's very daily I think for me. Okay. Like how I do it. Like sometimes it gets out of balance, like, you know, my daughter struggles with with homework sometimes, you know, and like getting it done and she needs something from me, but sometimes she doesn't ask and like the real need is I need to pay attention to that. So, that's the need of the day. And if or the need of the week or the month to try to get her back on track. So you know, while this song needs to get done, how do I get that done? Or I need to teach, you know, fourteen students this week. In addition to my gigs, how do I help my kid get homework done? And you know, it's a lot of teamwork. You know, to really balance a, a life with people and places and creativity and stuff like that. Like for me, one of the th- like I said, one of the things I did is like you know got involved in therapy. So it gives me like a better platform to do that. But whatever it is that helps you sort of attain that balance, make sure you have, like, an ally that you can always turn to to be like, hey, you know, I'm having this trouble today, you know, uh, people you really trust, especially men. You know, like, women know how to work in groups better. They just do. They, like, they know how to ask questions and they know how to – they're never too proud to to acquiesce in a way to – to help their their fellow group group person uh i don't know like team member okay and they seem to like they seem to have like that whereas men were taught to be rugged individualists and like and i think that way of being is kind of bullshit because you know so this is where like things like mansplaining and you know, toxic masculinity come into play where it's just like you have to be the top dog all the time. You know, like you to be the top dog kid. You know, come on. You know, you're the leader. You got to do this. You know, but they you can't tell every kid that. Right. You know, every kid now has this toxic version of like what it means to be a man. You know, and even the even the the top dog leaders they think they have to maintain that top dog position all the time. So they're the ones that are yelling at you and telling you Oh, you have to do this and you have to do that and you you have a great idea they twist it around to make it sound like they came up with that idea because they have to be the top dog. Because if they're not the top dog, who's the top dog? Not them.
0: Not them. So right, it, yeah, they have yeah. to
1: maintain that position. And women, I don't think they, you know, I'm sure some women have toxic masculinity traits because of that that effort to maintain that kind of leadership drama, really. Right. Um, but, like, I think, like, learning to maintain a life balance is leaving those kind of dogmas out okay of your life and really learning to balance and create meaningful relationships with, with people that you work with and live with i think that to be able to do that mean, means leaving absolutes out of it mm. you know, like if you have like a, an extreme amount of dogma that, that teaches you absolute ideas either do this or you don't you know black and white thinking things yeah. like that if yeah. you, if you have those kind of like sort of mandates in your mind all the time they will They will teach you that you're going to fail mm. <laughs> and some people have really successful lives, like as far as like that work creative balance or whatever that's work and creative, but it leaves so many other things you know out to dry true and I think for me, like this is for me individually, like I want to have a work you know a work life balance that maintains uh amazing friendships and you know romantic relationships or whatever i want to be able to communicate my worst fears to somebody and have them go that's what you're scared of that's not me that's not what i'm doing i love you you know and we're gonna get over that together hopefully yeah and you know if if that's that's really hard to do that kind of intimacy is tough to do
0: it is yeah
1: so you know maintaining work-life balance is not allowing people to overwhelm you you know it's like beyond your own boundaries, uh, really maintaining like, you know, if someone's angry, you know, give them a chance to cool off, you know, give them space. If, if you've done something wrong, take responsibility for it. You know, those little basic things. I teach this actually in my, in my guitar lessons, like fundamentals of life, the fundamentals of guitar life. It translates to the basics of life too, you know, like drink water every day, you know, Make sure that you, you know, get enough fiber so you can go to the bathroom. Because if you don't have those basic functions of life, like communications with other people and things like that, you will never attain that balance. Hmm. You know, learning how to, like, leave dogma, whether it's religious or political or whatever, behind, it leaves you wanting. And if, you, if you're if you wanting in a creative way and you, you're all out of balance and all these other things, your art doesn't connect with people i think you know like yeah i think that's true and if my art is teaching guitar and you know i have like a really ugly relationship with someone and i can't get out of it like i'm not going to sacrifice my art for that so i have to like that's where the balance comes in you know it's like i have to let go of this so i can maintain what i want what i truly want for for my life Mm -hmm. so i think that's the best way to maintain that balance
0: so it's kind of self-care it's like uh Mm -hmm. you know put the when the plane's going down put the mask on yourself first and then the person next to you
2: right yeah yeah
1: and some people are gonna throw the mask off and say we're not going down you know they're not gonna believe what you're telling them it's just like so then what do you do
2: right
0: yeah that's a tough one
1: you know it's like it's a so and that's what I mean like you know toxic relationships you know I know the best way to do this and I need to get up to the front and tell those flight attendants what they need to do. No, you need to sit down right. <laughs> and put your mask on. Yeah. So I tell you, sit down and put your mask on. <laughs> <laughs> You'll think a whole lot better. Yeah. <laughs> and that I think that mask of oxygen is like really good healthy communication with yourself and others. And I don't know. That's I think that's what I have to say about that. It's an important
0: lesson. Thank you. Yeah, no yeah. problem. How does a musician make a living?
1: Through various means, Um, I think. Streams of income. Yeah, I mean, I teach guitar lessons. I play gigs, and you know, I, you know, I think making a living as a musician is like you have to take money out of it, because making a life really is what you need to do. Mm. You know, you have to make a life. Your art will not live if you don't have a life. You can be like the stereotypical L.A. guy who hustles, and you know shimmies and shakes his way to the top and you know you know to really make a life doing that you end up like hurting a lot of people and you end up back at the bottom you're done you're you're uh it's like pulling a you know you pull the um the wheel on the what's that thing the lever the lever you pull the lever on the uh, the gambling machine whatever it's called and the wheels the 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 wheels spin upward and then they always end up back at the bottom (laughs) You take a much more big of gamble if you're if you're that kind of person, you know, so I think like if you're if you're aiming at making millions of dollars, that's not making a living right that's gambling, you aim at um
0: something sustainable yeah. and healthy,
1: yep sustainable, healthy you know practical, and do those things while you're doing all the other things, you know maintain like The maintain the the life that you love, of course. Like if you love being on the road and touring and stuff like that, yeah, great. But if you don't write songs that people want to listen to, you know, you're gonna be back at that bottom, you know. And so I don't know. I think you know, like rugged individualism plays a part in that too. You know, you have to to make a living. If you try to do everything all by yourself, you're not gonna really make a living, making a life for yourself. You're gonna end up sort of like alone. And well, and alone doesn't mean like, you know, living in a small apartment by yourself. It just means like in a world that doesn't value your presence. And so you have to like to really make a living and make money, you have to build develop relationships. And developing relationships takes a lot of work. Yeah. So for me to make the money that I make right now, I'm not necessarily making a living. But It sure would be a whole lot worse if I didn't have all the relationships that I have. True. And, you know, people I really trust and I work with ethical people. I only work with ethical people. If you wanna if you wanna be a a a musician who makes a living sustainably, you have to work with ethical people. If you work with people who will make you a quick buck and they make you a quick million, they'll steal that quick million from you as soon as they can. And that you know, that's the world of of music sometimes. But you have to just you have to dig and dig and dig and fi- figure out through feeling it that those people are safe to be around yeah. you know one of the most ethical people i know personally is jason felman and like he he took a music scene in portland and made it sustainable i mean the whole scene and like some people won't work with him because he demands that the musicians get paid and like He demands that he gets paid and he demands that like there's contracts and he demands that there's like functional business attributes in all the shows. And some people don't like that because it takes away control from them Mm -hmm. and they don't make they make less money, you know. But instead of having the one person happy, like the promoter, everybody's happy. You know, the 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 national touring bands that come through, you know, they don't want to pay any of the bands that open for them. But then they, you know, they don't make any money because like, people aren't going to sell them, like their entire life worth of tickets, you know, or buy onto a show. Because they can't, you know, right. they can't sustain that. So they just want to be musicians like everyone else. I mean, it'd be nice to like, it'd be nice to sell all your three hundred tickets that that we sold for you and get a piece of it that's more than. 50 bucks right you know we do all the work and you drive into town <laughs> right you know? but like at the same time we wouldn't have that opportunity if they didn't have like you know fifty thousand dollars in advertising this budget this budget this year so it's, it's difficult you know it is but yeah. like to make like i said to make a living you're not focused on money you're focused on you got to be focused on ethical relationships with people mm-hmm. who work hard and and know how to like translate effort into money mm-hmm. you know and that that's hard to do in the music yeah. industry especially right now nobody's selling nobody's buying records you know t-shirts you know people like they sell t-shirts that aren't made by the, the like band. knockoffs yeah, yeah knockoffs whatever, yeah. yeah and uh they i don't think about like unethical things like that so i can't even think of the words that go along with it but like you know the knockoff t-shirts and stuff like that i mean like black and blue there's a company in china that doesn't pay us any royalties or anything they don't pay uh you know any kind of like nothing to the band and you know we just started making our own t-shirts you know available online and uh you know We lost thousands and thousands of dollars because of that, you know. We see people with black and blue shirts like, we don't sell those. And they're like, wow, it's amazing. You guys don't sell this? And we're like, no. Mm. (laughs) Somebody, you know, somebody in China makes those. Wow. And so we've kind of like, you know, I'm just using that as an example. Sure, You know, like uh, Appetite for Deception, we make all our own merch and stuff like that, and we sell that. But, like, that's not part of the living. That's part of making sure the main the machine is maintained right, you know, and you know it's the it's the advertising unit of appetite for deception, and you have to be able to think business way like that it's like I'm not bringing home that money, that's just you know generating a knowledge of the band, mm-hmm. so it's but, marketing right yeah. exactly yeah. marketing on person to person right right so yeah, I think that's like that's how you make a living, okay, you know you have to figure out ways to get your word out there in an ethical fashion. I mean, like you can take a shortcut and make all kinds of like, you know, Kanye West, uh, efforts to get okay. popular. But then at the end of the day, where you, where are you at? You got millions of dollars, but everybody hates you. Yeah. You know, even your own fans hate you, <laughs> you know, it's just like, ugh. you know, like you could be more disgusting as a human being. And, but at the end of the day, you still gotta m- make money. Yeah. So,
0: well, where can uh, folks find you online, Brandon? And uh find out about where you're playing and uh um
1: to... well, I have a website. It is www.brandoncookmusic.com. Um and you can contact me there through the the web portal that I have contact. I'm on Facebook and Appetite for Deceptions on Facebook and all the bands that I have have a Facebook presence. Jukebox Heroes, Bam, Black and Blue, um The Loyal Order and Metamorphosis and they all are ready to there are some websites out there for that too but like the big one i want to push on is like metamorphosis and, and metamorphosis and low order are, are on itunes and where they're available for purchase
0: thank you so much for taking the time
1: hey no problem man. all right thank you my pleasure
0: find out more at artmedianorthwest.com a-r-t-m-e-d-i-a-n-w.com <laughs>